Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Today, Andy will be answering questions submitted by you in no particular order. Our first question was submitted by Brad. What is your opinion of special purpose acquisition companies as an asset class from the perspective of a public equity investor, as opposed to a sponsor or acquisition candidate? Does the redemption feature and or attached warrants yield a form of optionality that is interesting? SPACs are a fine trade for the hedge fund trade in the SPAC space, which is buying the new issue, then redeeming when they do a deal and keeping the warrants. You know, it works. That's a reasonable investment. Holding the SPAC post-acquisition, first of all, hasn't worked. If you look at the data from 19 and 20, they've lost money, substantially underperforming the broad market, and it doesn't work because of the dilution of the warrants, which the redeeming shareholders still hold, and the tremendous equity piece that the sponsor gets. So it's a fine trade to buy it and redeem. It's a bad trade to buy it and hold it through the acquisition. I think, though the question didn't pose this, I would add a couple of things on two different levels. First, from the perspective of a market observer in terms of frothiness versus non-frothiness, cheapness versus uh, expensiveness, I do think the presence of SPACs are another indicator of the market being extremely frothy. It's not the case that a couple of SPACs doing bad deals or this round of SPACs doing badly is the thing that will break the speculative bubble. And it's not something that I think gives much indication in terms of timing of when the speculative bubble might break. But it is an indicator that the market is quite frothy. On a different level, I think it's interesting to think about what SPACs say about the financial system more broadly. Not just that it's speculative versus cheap, but why this particular phenomenon at this particular time. Speculative bubbles, you know, almost definitionally, require a story that has some resonance with the public and almost always to have some resonance, you have to have some element of truth. So the SPAC sponsors and SPAC underwriters do say that this is a better, cheaper way for a certain class of company to come public. I don't know whether, strictly speaking, that's true, but I think it's certainly true that now the infrastructure does not really exist for small to mid-size unexciting companies to both come public and remain as unorphaned public companies. Even among the ones that can come public, have a story that somebody can spin in an exciting enough way to draw public interest. Their sort of natural destiny is to become orphaned and for the public markets to not provide an ongoing continuing source of reasonably priced capital, you know, serving both the company's interests and investors' interest. Part of this is the governance of public companies and the infrastructure and the financial infrastructure in place or not in place 
as it evolved over the last 20 years. You know, 20 years ago, there were many more regional boutique investment bank firms. And at a typical story was a regional firm bringing public a regional company that was raising the money for a national expansion. The regional firms don't exist. The ongoing investment coverage doesn't exist. The investor base for those companies doesn't exist. But also, economically, the regional to national story requiring capital is much less common today than 20 years ago. The best businesses today, in fact, are not capital intense, and in particular, the expansion from proof of concept to national, international, is often considerably less capital intensive than it would have been for the businesses of 20 or 40 years ago. Generically, for as long as I've been an observer of markets and financial systems, there has existed what's frequently called the public company problem. For an enterprise of any size, labor, management, ownership, and governance are not embodied in the same people. And aligning their interests in a coherent, efficient way is, broadly speaking, the public company problem. In the 70s and early 80s, the most frequent and common understanding of the problem was that owners wanted returns and just returns. Management, which didn't have ownership, wanted power, perks, glory, uh, fiefdoms, you know, bigger from a management's point of view was better even if it did not provide returns for shareholders. The solution proposed in the 80s was basically the stock option solution, an attempt to align management's interests with shareholder interests by making the majority of management compensation tied to share performance. I think the results of this have been mixed from a corporate performance point of view, though quite obviously owners have done better under this regime than under previous regimes. But in fact, shortcomings in the governance portion became manifest, most blatantly in the scandals at Enron and WorldCom. The point I think I'd like to make is that first, governance in the modern world is separate from ownership. Governance, so for example, public companies, they all have to be audited, they all have to make public disclosures that are specified by a set of rules. These are not rules imposed by their discrete set of owners, or even owners generally. They're third party, other outside bodies, mostly government, but some independent quasi-government type structures. So one of the things I've observed in different contexts is that finance is a form of governance. You can ask company, a business has assets on which they are trying to generate income. Finance slices and dices claims on those assets. Now, very frequently, it's the same set of people that own the different claims. It's not 
that the slicing and dicing is to fit the preferences and risk profiles and objectives and so forth of the investors because a single investor very often will own you know more broadly speaking investors organization will own all of them institutional investors will own most of the equity and the same institutional investors though maybe in a different room or a different building will own most of the debt so why is this done it has no direct economic function it doesn't make sense the institution should just own the business and I posit that the reason that it's done is that the form of finance is a form of governance. To the extent that a company has debt, which legally requires payments of interest and principal, they have to manage their affairs in a manner in which they'll be able to do that, or another set of rules will kick in. Quite explicitly, the beginning of the stock option era came the LBO era, the management buyout era. And Milken at Drexel very explicitly stated that high levels of debt made managements better, made managements more focused, made them, in fact, have to manage their businesses to produce current cash flow, were a disincentive for pie-in-the-sky, long-range fantasies or dreams. So Milken kind of explained explicitly said that debt was a form of governance that improved the performance of companies and better aligned the interests of investors and managers. Circling back, as I think is required, to the SPAC question, I think the SPAC form is another attempt at a solution to the public company problem, the governance issues. The SPAC sponsor, I think fairly explicitly, is charged with being a super interested shareholder and serving the shareholder's interest and in a particular financial context wherein sponsors are expected to have both operating experience and kind of public company finance experience. The minority shareholders look to sort of the sponsor to prevent the company from becoming an orphaned public company, to help the company gain access to capital, prevent the company from not having access to capital. To date, all the solutions to the public company problem that have been tried have been lacking in a certain regard. and None of them have been remotely perfect, maybe not even good. I don't think the SPAC solution will be or is particularly effective in large part because it's just too good a deal for a sponsor. And it's a good deal for the sponsor if they do nothing. It could be a great deal for the sponsor if they were really effective. But human nature is such that many people have offered a good deal for nothing that could be transformed into a great deal with a great deal of effort will be satisfied with just having the good deal. So that's SPACs. Our next question comes from Mickey. What is your view on investing in real estate over the next 12 to 18 months? Is real estate something you'll be looking at as values in certain sectors, i.e. hospitality, retail, office, etc., have gotten hit hard during the pandemic? Or are you more interested in the stable asset classes, industrial, medical, multifamily, in the near term, even as they trade at low cap rates? Okay, let me uh, first qualify my answer with I am not a great real estate investor. I've lost money in every personal residence I've ever owned, and I don't have a huge amount of direct experience over an extended period of time. That said, generically, I like 
hospitality hotels as an asset class vis-a-vis the rest of the real estate market. And I've done one sort of rescue finance deal. I certainly haven't seen a lot of distressed properties or distressed sales come across the market. For the most part, good properties have been able to finance operating losses across COVID. And things like Hilton and Marriott stock are obviously not distressed priced. I think they've both, you know, recovered, you know, more than 100% of their spring declines. I think it's similar in the office space. As I said in the previous podcast, my play in the office space has been the Blackstone Mortgage Trust, BXMT. I'm reasonably positive on offices, you know, over the intermediate term. I think in five years, there'll be more demand for office space than there is now. You know, I'm not sort of a a believer in the irrevocable change in patterns from COVID with everybody now working from home. I mean, that said, they say all real estate is local, and I think there may well be a migration away from the most expensive central business district markets to other places. That's not something I would particularly know how to play or be particularly expert at implementing. In contrast, I think the challenges to retail are much more longer term in nature. So I said, you know, five years from now, there'll be more demand for office space than there is today. I'm pretty sure five years from now, there'll be less retail space than there is today. We're still quite overbuilt in terms of retail space, in my opinion. So generically, I would not be looking at that part of the market. Our next question comes from Mike. For what asset classes, if any, are you worried about credit losses materializing coming out of the COVID crisis? How long do you think it will take for banks and other lenders to see the effects of this? To what extent, one, have banks over versus under provision for losses, and two, are bank stocks either over or underpriced relative to what you believe will happen with bank charge-offs? I'm talking my book here, but I think credit losses to banks, I think, will be quite limited and sort of highly concentrated in hospitality, uh, travel and leisure, the limited hardest hit sectors to the extent that there's a long and painful recovery on the individual side if in fact unemployment remains you know, above 6% for an extended period of time, as I think is plausible. I don't see that filtering through to the residential mortgage markets and banks don't have huge exposure there. My guess is that banks are over-reserved and they'll be reversing those over the next handful of years and there won't be anything remotely resembling a contagion effect where weakness in certain sectors, particularly the travel, leisure, hospitality sector, spills over into weakness uh, sufficient to materially increase defaults and credit losses across other sectors. So I remain optimistic on the banks. And our last question this week comes from Peter. 
How would you implement your idea to include asset prices in the Fed's inflation target? What weight would you put on the financial assets in the new index? How would you disentangle the natural growth of intrinsic value versus price inflation of those assets? I have a great way of avoiding slash ducking this question in that I do not believe the Fed should be targeting inflation. So whether inflation includes asset prices or not, I don't have to compute an index for the Fed to target. And a couple of points here. First, as a matter of principle and a matter of theory, as a matter of reality, inflation is unmeasurable. You cannot have an accurate measure of inflation without a complete understanding of human preferences. And it's not just that we don't have the right formula for what the Fed calls hedonic adjustments of prices, taking into account improvements. No economic algorithm is possible. And it's even harder today than it would have been a long time ago because there's a lot of the economy that for which prices don't exist and have never existed. So if you think about what the computing and memory power in your phone cost 30 years ago, you're maybe $100 million for a phone that's $100. That's not deflation. The right word for that is progress. But there, on the computing example, you did at one point have a price. We've never had a price for search. Way back when, if I wanted to know Mickey Mantle's batting average in 1962, I had to dig through my baseball cards, or I had to go to the library, or I had to pay somebody to dig up a reference manual. Now I can ask my phone and find it out instantaneously. There's never been a price for that. So it's simply impossible to compare today's basket of goods with yesterday's basket of goods and to reliably say anything about what's happened to the price level. I think that there's a saying that economic statistics have a decimal point shows that economists have a sense of humor. I think it is possible. You can tell whether you have a lot of inflation or a lot of deflation or rough price stability. The Fed's target is nominally 2%. You really can't tell the difference between 0, 2, and 4. And not just as a matter of practice, but also as a matter of theory. It's impossible. The other part of the Fed's mandate is full employment. I don't think the Fed should be targeting employment either, you know, because I don't think they can. The Fed is a central bank. The sole objective of the Fed should be the soundness, the smoothness, the stability of the financial system. Obviously, if you can do that, you help both price stability and full employment, but you can't, in fact, on planet Earth, thereby achieve either of both of them consistently and evenly over time. Classically, the idea of a central bank, the role of a central bank, was as lender of last resort, a financial backstop for the banking system when solvent creditors, solvent banks could not meet their liquidity needs. This, to me, is by far the best, the most important, wouldn't be a problem if it were the only role of a central bank. Of course, nothing in life is completely easy. It's not absolutely obvious which last resort loans should not be made, which 
businesses have outlived their usefulness are insolvent and need to be liquidated in an orderly way so no bank will be perfect in serving as a lender of last resort but this is appropriate the fed at this point is the chief regulator of chartered banks one can see this as an appropriate and suitable adjunct to its role as lender of last resort you don't want there to be a lot of last resort loans so you want prudence within the banking system you want well capitalized banks you don't want systematic imbalances creating the potential for wholesale back loans and runs and so forth if we look at the world today it seems to me obvious and one does not need a decimal point or the pretense of precision to that degree to make the following sorts of statements the economy is weak the weakness is concentrated in a number of sectors tightly linked to the pandemic experience and employment is weak driven by the weakness in employment in those sectors there's ample without a decimal point and a lot of attention to the construction of the index there is considerable asset price inflation no matter how and where you look um, the naked eye can see that there is asset price inflation I think there's some, though nowhere near as obvious or as rampant, there's some consumer price inflation, certainly not consumer price deflation. So to me, the appropriate policy mix would be for the Fed to be raising interest rates, raising particularly the Treasury rate, not buying Treasuries, selling Treasuries, looking for a higher Fed funds rate, but with specific targeted subsidized lending. Again, that is more Congress's purview than the Fed's. But if I were a central planner or the head of the Fed, that would be what I would be advocating. Increasing broadly interest rates, but targeting subsidized loans and liquidity to clearly pandemic-related weakness in certain sectors. The PPP program, which obviously is authorized by Congress and, in fact, funded, is a blunt instrument not wholly objectionable. And I think it's right that in this second round there's a requirement that businesses have actually suffered sales declines related to the pandemic versus the previous round the assorted main street lending programs also make sense in the current context and programs such as those two are both vastly more appropriate effective etc than the zero interest rate policy across the board and for privileged borrowers Harking back to my earlier comments on the financial system and the problems that a financial system tries to address, the function of a financial system, perhaps the principal function, is you want to connect sources of money, savers, with efficient uses of money, productive enterprises. In a well-functioning financial system, there should be a positive return for passive investment. You know, if you want people to save and that saving to be targeted to productive uses, you don't want to require that everybody be a skilled and diligent investor. You'd like them to be able to get a return 
passively. One of the huge costs of the zero interest rate policy is it really makes that impossible. Now, Bernanke argued that extremely low interest rates were not primarily driven by policy. They were driven by the Asian savings glut or what have you. Um, I don't think that's true. You know, I think, though, in point of fact, the forces of supply and demand, say the saving and investing side, will drive fluctuation in interest rates. I think we'd be wildly better off if that was a larger determinant of interest rates than is currently the case. Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.